Welcome to the Trinity Student Manage Fund podcast with me, Will O'Callaghan. On this podcast, I speak to leaders in the world of finance, business and technology to give us students a better insight into careers we may wish to pursue. This episode is sponsored by Elkstone. Elkstone is a family office managing the wealth of its principals with a focus on real estate, venture capital and alternatives and a multi-family office regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland which provides both access to co-investing in their principal's investment portfolios and wealth management services to many of Ireland's entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals. Elkstone has a strong pedigree of backing many high growth tech companies and was a seed stage backer of several high profile Irish startups, including Unicorn Let's Get Checked, Flipdish, Soapbox Labs and Mana. My guest today is Sam Zell. Sam is the founder and chairman of Equity Group Investments, the private investment firm he founded more than 50 years ago. He also chairs four companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Sam also founded and chaired Equity Office Properties Trust, which was the largest office REIT until its 2007 sale for 39 billion US dollars in the largest leveraged buyout at the time. Sam is an active philanthropist with a focus on entrepreneurial education, Through the Zell Family Foundation, he has led the sponsorship of several leading entrepreneurship programs, including the Zell Lurie Institute for Entrepreneurial Studies at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. He holds a JD degree and a BA from the University of Michigan and was recognized in 2017 by Forbes as one of the 100 greatest living business minds. So please enjoy this very insightful conversation with Sam. Sam, welcome to the Trinity SMF podcast. Thanks very much for joining me today. My pleasure. If we start at the beginning, could you give us some insight into your childhood and how being the child of immigrant parents shaped the person you are today? Well, um, you know, I was born about 90 days after my parents came to this country. Their, their trip here was an 18-month journey, starting in Poland and going all the way across uh, Eastern Europe and Russia to Japan, and then from Japan to the United States. So, uh, you know, I kind of grew up in a very different environment than most people at the time. You know, one of the funny stories of my family was that uh, when my mother's water broke and uh, my mother and father got dressed to go to the hospital, they, of course, you know, went downstairs and caught a, a trolley car. And the trolley car, in order to get to the hospital, uh, had a, uh, uh, a transfer. And they got to the transfer point, and it was like 11 o'clock at night, and the next trolley car didn't come. So they walked the last six blocks to get to the hospital for, for me to be born. But, you know, being growing up in that kind of a household, uh, had all kinds of ramifications uh, for me. First of all, there was an innate and continuous reference to how lucky we were that we were able to come to the United States. Uh, my father constantly referred to the streets, you know, as being paved with gold. What he meant was that, you know, that you had freedom. Uh, that you didn't, you know, look around the corner every day to see who was threatening you, uh, but that you were free to do as you liked and free to work as hard as you wanted to and achieve the objectives. So I grew up in a family where, uh, you know, there was a great uh, emphasis on excellence, a great emphasis on education. I can't tell you how many times... uh, my father told me that what other kids did wasn't relevant. Uh, what was relevant is what you did. And that uh, from his perspective, uh, my orientation was to have too much fun. I mean, i never forget when I was in high school, uh, I went to my high school basketball game on a Friday night. And then the next, night, next week, Uh, The team was playing again, and I told my father I was going to go to the basketball game. And his response was, you went already. Uh, You went last week. Why would you want to ever go again? 
Uh, and I think that, that, you know, bringing that kind of a discipline, uh, uh, a, a high aspiration and a high expectation to everything that represented my life for sure uh, set me forward and, and made me think differently, for sure differently than uh, my contemporaries. The difference between the way I looked at life and the way, you know, my friend that, you know, across the street who had grown up in the United States and his parents had grown up in the United States uh, was very different. Uh, I think as a result, I think that I had a much higher discipline level, a much higher expectation level. And I think that played a major role in my success going forward. I also think that being in the house of an immigrant and being the beneficiary of that immigrant's activities and ability to come to the United States. And, you know, I mean, think about what it must have been like for my father at age 34 to leave everything and take his wife and his young child and embark on a journey where they didn't know where they were going. That certainly, uh, you know, that story certainly influenced me very significantly and probably had a big impact on, I think, a general philosophy that I had, which was that, you know, I didn't know what I couldn't do. And therefore, I was never stymied by, you know, fear of failure or because I didn't know what I could do. And so therefore, nobody told me I couldn't do things. So I just did them. That's a great story, Sam. And thanks for sharing those details. If we fast forward a few years then to when you were in university at the University of Michigan, as a third year undergrad, you got involved in real estate and managed a 15 unit student apartment building. So could you tell us how you came across this opportunity and what were some of the biggest learnings that you took away from the experience? Well, first of all, uh, going back to what I just said a minute ago, if you don't know what you can't do, then there are no limits to what you can do. Academia was never one of my you know, obsessions. Uh, I generally did well enough in school in order to achieve the next level, but I wasn't really, uh, I always needed exterior stimulation and other things to make me happy. And uh, one night I went and uh, met a friend of mine and I went to his house and uh, he had been renting a house. And he told me that the previous night, the owner of the house had come over and told him that uh, he had bought the house next door and that as soon as the semester was over, he was gonna level both houses and build a 15 unit apartment building. And I said to my friend, gee, we're students, why don't we, you know, pitch him on managing it? And, you know, maybe we, you know, we could cut a deal where we would take care of the building and, you know, and he would give us a free apartment each. You know, that made a lot of sense. So that's what we did. And unbelievably, he bought our act. And so literally, you know, we got hired to do this, you know, to do this job. Uh, we rented all the apartments. We got involved in designing some of the units, uh, which when we looked at them closely, felt that uh, there were improvements that could be made. Uh, we ended up buying all the furniture and we ended up taking responsibility for the whole building and ended up with a free apartment each. Everybody who hears that story kind of just looks and says, my God, I mean, how, how did you do that? And as I said a minute ago, I didn't know I couldn't. You know, I think Abe Lincoln said it very well when he said common sense isn't so common. But as far as I was concerned, what was so difficult about renting apartments? What was so difficult about, you know, maintaining a building? What was so difficult about, you know, selecting furniture that kids would enjoy, you know, living in? 
none of it seemed to be much of a challenge. And the result was that uh, we got the job. We were very, very successful, did much better than was expected. And the result was that that set of owners in that first building then gave us another building. And then somebody else heard about us and gave us a third building. And by the time I graduated from law school, uh, we had a pretty significant array of apartment buildings that we were managing. Very good. It's very interesting to hear and learn about how you first got involved in investing and you make it sound easier than it is as a student, but it's incredibly impressive to have started at, at such a young age. Yeah. And yet I would tell you that um, it really wasn't that hard and it was very beneficial because it distracted me from the boredom of academia. How did Equity Group Investments come about then? And what has been the key to you and Equity Group's success over the past 50 years? Well, um, I, initially, you know, I went to law school and, uh, and I must tell you that I went to law school because my father, uh, when discussing my future with him, said, whatever you do, get a degree that gives you a profession. And so I always intended to go to law school. And I always thought that maybe I could do legal work and do business activities together. And, you know, and I, you know, met some lawyers, uh, you know, who seemed to, you know, uh, represent both sides of the coin. And I kind of thought that that was what I was going to do. I had a very difficult time uh, getting a job. That was despite the fact that I went to one of the best law schools in the country and ended up in the top you know, 20% of my class. But what I had misunderstood was how I might be perceived by virtue of how I put together my resume. I figured that running these apartment buildings and buying and selling uh, real estate and doing all the things that I did while I was in law school uh, would be very impressive to anybody reading my resume. So I populated my resume with all of the different experiences that I'd had. Uh, and frankly, I was very proud of the resume. I made 44 applications to different law firms and I got rejected by 43. And I never understood why until one day near the end of the process, I was being interviewed by a very big firm and they in turn, I uh, got through the first interview and then I went to the second interview and the second interview was with a senior partner. So I went into his office and I sat down and uh, he, you know, got off the telephone and looked at me and he said, tell me about your deals. I looked at him and I said, tell you about my deals? I want a job. He says, oh, we would never hire you. You wouldn't last more than three months. I said, what do you mean? I said, what about Perry Mason? And uh, he said, you don't understand. Uh, what you've outlined on this resume represents something that almost nobody has ever been able, you know, nobody could ever do. And you succeeded at doing it. Why would you want to spend your time as a scrivener? And I said, but, but that's, you know, I mean, I just went to law school. I just, you know, and he says, you don't understand. Well, after that interview, uh, I had a better understanding of what he had to say. The 44th firm did hire me. And that firm was a very small firm and it had seven lawyers in it. And their focus was real estate. And frankly, that's why they hired me. So I started to work for them. And um, the first day uh, they gave me a job, which was to draft a contract between a linen supply company and a dormitory. Now, for anybody who's gone to law school, you know that when you graduate from law school, you basically don't know anything. And I was no exception. So I didn't really know what to do. I asked the guys, you know, who 
worked next to me. I looked up the horn books, which are the form books. And I started working on this contract, which I worked on throughout that whole first week. And I submitted it after a couple of days and it came back. And frankly, it looked like the senior partner had cut his wrists before he returned it because there was so many red marks on the contract about what was wrong with what I had done. And I changed it and I fixed it. And finally, on uh, as a result of all this experience, I decided that this just didn't make any sense. And so on Friday morning, I went to see the senior partner and uh, I looked at him and as only a 24 year old could do, you know, hubris is part of being 24. I looked at him and said, you know, I don't think this is a good use of my time. And the guy looked at me and he says, what are you saying? I said, I said that I'm quitting. And uh, and I appreciate the opportunity you've given me, but I don't think this is, you know, the right place for me and, and where I can make a contribution. And he looked at me and he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go back to doing deals, which is what I was doing while I was in law school. And he said, well, why don't you just stay here and we'll do legal work. You can you know, put your deals together and we'll invest in them. And so that's what we did. And uh, so EGI, as it's known today, kind of began that afternoon when, in effect, I hung out my shingle as an entrepreneur and started doing transactions. That lasted about a year and a half when it became very obvious that you can't really operate inside of a a hierarchical structure being an entrepreneur. And so in January 1st, 1968, uh, I basically stepped out and created the company that I operated for the next 50 years. Creating that company and, and, and making it work has been a full-time experience, uh, to say the least. It's been a, an experience with an extraordinary amount of change. Uh, what we did in the first three years was very different than what we did in the next three years and in the next three years. And, and so over a 50-year period, we dealt with a great deal of change and a great deal of learning as we went from initially all real estate to 50-50 non-real estate to uh, 70-30, even more non-real estate, and different kinds of challenges as we went along. Uh, There are a lot of things that one could attribute to why we were successful. I think one of the most important ones was uh, what I I call is, is the 11th commandment which is thou shalt not take oneself seriously. Uh, I think we basically, from the beginning, viewed it as fun, viewed it as a challenge, didn't think, frankly, the rest of the world was a lot more impressed with what we did than what we were impressed with. And uh, I think the result was that uh, we were able to, you know, communicate and create and create an environment of accessibility and and an environment of of internal uh, unity and recognition that the challenge was the competitors outside, not the challenge inside. It started out as a very small firm of three people and the communication system was yelling. And then eventually became a multinational organization with representation uh, all over the place and billions of dollars of assets, but very much you know, never losing its sense of fun. That's a fantastic story. And I'm sure you haven't looked back since that day, speaking to the senior partner to, to see where EGI is now. I think, you know, my attitude is that uh, last time I checked, my neck uh, didn't turn all the way around. So I therefore have never spent much time trying to look back. And I spent all my time trying to look forward. And it's clear from reading your book that, Jay Pritzker is someone who played an important role in your career as a mentor and your first investor. Could you explain for our members who Jay was, how this relationship developed, and what was the most significant thing you learned from him? First of all, Jay was not my first investor, but he was 
probably the most significant investor. Jay was the ultimate entrepreneur, the ultimate risk taker, and uh, maybe the smartest single businessman I've ever met. He, he was responsible for building one of the great fortunes in the United States. Uh, some of the things that you know he was most known for was uh, uh, the creation of Hyatt Corporation, uh, one of the largest you know international hotel companies. But frankly, compared to some of the other things he did, that was relatively small. I met Jay uh, because one morning I was sitting in my office and somebody that I dealt with called me at seven o'clock in the morning and said, you know, I was with Jay Pritzker yesterday and uh, he's looking for a young lawyer, uh, real estate entrepreneur under 30 to come work for him. And I thought of you and, you know, that you were perfect. And I said to this guy on the phone, I said, come on, uh, if I met all of those criteria, why would I want to work for him or anybody else? And he said, oh, you should go meet this guy. I said, yeah, I don't understand, you know, what, what's that kind of, anyway, bottom line is he convinced me to go meet him. So the next morning I went over at nine o'clock in the morning. And I literally sat at Jay's desk from nine in the morning until 4.30. The first, you know, five or six hours, he was trying to convince me uh, that I should come join him. And I kept trying to explain to him that if I met all of his criteria, by definition, I wouldn't want to join him because my independence was too important to me. And then finally, at about 4.30 in the afternoon, I said, look, Jay, you're not going to convince me. Why don't we just do a deal together? And the result was that we did the first of many deals together. And uh, I learned a great deal, you know, sitting you know, at his footsteps. There were a lot of things that I learned from that relationship. But perhaps the one thing that I learned better than anything else was that he had a very unique ability to look at a situation and identify the risk. I would come to him with some convoluted structure of how I wanted to do it and, and what the opportunity was, and I'd lay it all out and you know, it would have 20 steps. And he'd look at me and he'd say, but isn't the basic risk step seven? isn't this where it either works or it doesn't work? And I was, you know, just taken aback that here I had laid all this out and laid everything out. And, and this guy just literally, you know, took a, a, a knife and stuck it right in the center of where the risk really was. And I think that I've been perpetuating that strategy myself ever since. And I think of all the things that I learned from him, uh, I don't think I learned anything that was more relevant than being able to look at a broad picture and narrow the focus to where the risk was. Because if you can identify the risk, you can evaluate the risk. And if you can evaluate the risk, then you can make a judgment as to how much risk you're willing to take and what the probabilities were of success. You were known as being one of the pioneers of real estate investment trusts also known as REITs. So could you explain for the listeners firstly what REITs are and what made them so attractive for you to invest in day one? Real estate investment trusts uh, were the creation of the last act that President Eisenhower signed in 1958. And it was actually an amendment, or an, an amendment to the Cigar Act which had something to do with the regulation of cigars. But a real estate investment trust basically provided that if you met certain criteria, you could create a corporation that as long as it paid out 95% of its earnings was not subject to double taxation, which a normal corporation was supposed to do. And so... The, the whole concept behind it was that this was an attempt to create a public vehicle uh, 
that would let the little old lady from Pasadena invest in commercial real estate, which was otherwise a very private affair. The legislation was passed, the REIT structure was created, and from give or take 1960 on until 1991, 1992, uh, the industry grew from zero to $7 billion. Now, that's a very, very slow rate of growth for a 30-year period in which the rest of the country was growing significantly. And the reason was that the private sector was so much more attractive than the public vehicles that, frankly, the, the people who ended up in the REIT structure prior to 1991-1992 were those people who couldn't do well competing in the private sector. The private sector also provided a, a level of leverage that allowed entrepreneurs to build fortunes like I did by virtue of the fact that they could borrow, you know, 90% of the proceeds or whatever the, the particular ratio was. This all came to a head at the end of the 80s. For those of you who don't remember, the 80s were a turbulent period in real estate in the United States. The Japanese uh, had kind of invaded the US real estate. There was an enormous amount of overbuilding. And by the end of the 80s, predictable results occurred. The savings and loans went broke. A uh, number of insurance companies went broke. Public limited partnerships went broke. And the real estate industry was confronted with the fact that all of its sources of capital had basically disappeared. And the only one left was the public markets. And that's what precipitated the creation of what we would call today the modern REIT era. So from about $7 billion in total assets under management, in 1992 or three to over a trillion dollars of assets under management today, it gives you an idea of how successful uh, the whole creation and development of the REIT market has become. And sticking to REITs for a moment, you founded and chaired Equity Office Properties Trust, which was yes. the largest office REIT until its 2007 sale to Blackstone for 39 billion US dollars which was the largest leveraged buyout at the time. So could you tell us how this deal came about? And over the years, how have you learned to think about timing market cycles? And what are the key indicators you analyze? Well, first of all, the origins of equity office were directly connected to my attitude about what was going on in the overall real estate market. As I said previously, a few minutes ago, the 80s represented overbuilding of every form of real estate in the United States. Matter of fact, I wrote an article in 1988 called From Cassandra with Love. That article, Cassandra was a lady uh, who lived in Troy uh, in mythical times, and she was cursed by the gods of making true predictions that nobody would believe. And when I wrote the article, this was 1988, and there was still a lot of, you know, over-enthusiasm for real estate. And uh, I got involved and uh, basically said the end of the world was coming and that we were about to, you know, confront the greatest oversupply in history and the greatest real estate depression that anybody had ever seen. Needless to say, everybody criticized me for writing this, uh, uh, suggested that I was actually uh, trying to discourage anybody else from entering the real estate market so that all the, quote, good deals I could keep to myself and other kind of ridiculous versions. I followed up that article in, in 1989 by beginning the first real estate opportunity fund. The challenge of raising institutional money for uh, real estate opportunity was truly extraordinary because not only did we have to confront 
uh, in a conversation with institutional investors who had been listening to, uh, you know, MIAs and other uh, savants about how terrific the real estate market was. And we came in and said the end of the world was coming. And the second thing was that in many cases at that time, institutional investors didn't even have uh, an allocation for real estate. Real estate, you know, there was still a question of whether real estate was an appropriate class of investment or assets for institutional investors. So those were kind of the first two challenges that we confronted, but we were able to raise in that first fund $400 million. And then I subsequently raised four more additional funds. So we raised, I think, $3 billion and uh, running all the way up until about 1995. And we invested in, in office buildings primarily, but a lot of other as well. We sold off everything else but the office buildings. And then in 1997, created and took Equity Office public. And we ran that company from 1997 till 2007 when we sold to Blackstone. A lot of people give me credit for market timing and uh, genius at picking out the right time. Uh, I would like to agree with them, but I don't necessarily believe it. As I said before, common sense isn't so common. So yeah, we had a very simple philosophy, and that was that every 90 days we valued the portfolio. And uh, you know, we measured that up against the stock price and measured that up against other steps and, uh, and, and then acted accordingly. And frankly, by the time 1996 came around, we actually believed that we were too big to be acquired by anybody. And so being acquired wasn't even part of the, the mix of, of thoughts that we had at the time. And I remember we actually got an approach in the end of 1996 or the middle of 1996 from an institutional investor. And uh, they came up with a number and the number was significantly below what our you know, MAV analysis had been. And so we just said, you know, without even raising the question of whether we were too big to be acquired, we just said, you know, you're not in the ballpark and uh, thank you very much. And uh, we continued to operate and we then did our next, you know, NAV analysis. And then all of a sudden out of the woodwork and in the end of 96, November of 96, Blackstone showed up with an offer, all cash, subject to nothing. And the number was give or take 20% higher than our last NAV. That put me in the unique and frankly difficult position, which was that, you know, once you take a company public, you kind of make a deal with the devil. When it's a private company, it's your company and you get to decide what to do. When you take it public, you basically accept the fact that your public shareholders are who you are responsible to. And so receiving an offer above our own valuation of what it was worth required us to respond. We responded and ended up uh, agreeing to a price with them. But the key to the transaction from our point of view was that we really didn't know what the portfolio was really worth. And so what we wanted to do was make sure that whatever deal we agreed to did not preclude anyone else from competing to buy it. So we agreed on the price, we agreed on the terms, and the real sticking point was the breakup fee, which was we kept that very, very low. It was $200 million against the $39 billion deal, which basically meant that no one who was interested would be precluded from acting uh, because of some breakup fee. And that resulted in uh, some other activity. And eventually uh, we went from 49.50 a share or 48.50 a share and 
closed the sale at 55, 50 a share. And in the process of upping the Blackstone bid from 48.50 to 55.50, each time we went higher, uh, the breakup fee went higher. Uh, and so it was kind of a, of a dual dance process. But that's how we uh, achieved that objective. I still don't think it has anything to do with genius at picking time. The genius was to understand what it was worth or what it was worth to us, uh, as opposed to what it was worth to somebody else. And uh, in that particular case, it was worth more to somebody else than it was worth to us. And we were able to take advantage of that arbitrage and you know, deliver an extraordinary rate of return to our investors and ourselves. Equity Group is known for only doing a few deals per year. What is the main reason for this strategy and what makes a deal attractive enough for Sam Zell to purchase an asset? It starts with being agnostic about industry. We don't, you know, we don't say that, you know, our focus or our specialty is uh, logistics or drugs or what. We look at every opportunity differently and attempt to figure out whether, you know, we could handle those opportunities. But as a starting point, the starting point is we never do anything that we couldn't take over and run ourselves if things got very difficult. So we don't do any rocket engines. We don't do any biotech uh, stuff. And we end up doing stuff that fits that Abe Lincoln comment about common sense isn't so common. And we look for opportunities that perhaps other people don't see or have other characteristics that we think protect us. As an investor, first and foremost, our objective is to understand the downside. I think it was Bernard Baruch, who was one of the few people in 1929 who sold before the market went down. He had a very famous quote, which was, nobody ever went broke taking a profit. Uh, in the same manner, we've never suffered because deals got too good. So our definition of a successful investment is one in which we have predicted how bad it could get. And even if it got that bad, the fact that that was the limit of how bad it got was a very important part of the thought process. We also have a very healthy uh, respect for competition. Given a choice, we always want a monopoly. If we can't have a monopoly, then we want an oligopoly. Open and unfettered competition is an extraordinarily difficult scenario. And you're oftentimes competing with other people's money, maybe, maybe run by third parties, people who uh, have less concern or less rate of return expectations. So I think we've always been very focused on barriers to entry. And this was true in real estate or in other companies. You know, what are the risks? You know, can we identify the risks? I mean, you know, one of the, you know, famous transactions we did was we invested in a company called Adams Drugs where a guy came to me and he was a contract pill manufacturer and a specialist in guaiacetin, which is the second most, uh, when the FDA was created in 1936, that drug was second after aspirin that was grandfathered by the creation of the FDA. And, uh, what he, and there was a provision in the FDA's initial legislation that said you could get a monopoly if you proved a new level of efficacy for an existing grandfather drug. And so I looked at it and I said, well, you know, we've never been in the drug business, but this is really not the drug business because the drug itself has got over a hundred years of experience. And the idea of, of creating a delayed you know, delivery system was also proven. 
So just the question of paying for the clinical trials and then creating a product. And we did that and, and eventually created a product called Mucinex, which today is the number one product of that nature. Uh, and, you know, I think we made 20 to one in our money or something with some preposterous number. But again, you know, very simple thinking, uh, not uh, esoteric, not synergism, just like in the same manner, you know, we've done a lot of consolidations. And, uh, you know, one of the big issues in consolidations is that people put into the calculations synergism and or cross-selling or, and uh, from our experience, uh, those kinds of provisions are interesting, but rarely meet the expectations. And so instead of looking at them as synergism, we tried to identify redundancies. So one of the first consolidations we ever did was in the container leasing business, where there were seven sisters worldwide that represented the container leasing business. And we, in effect, owned number four and we acquired number three and number seven and became number one. And the real key to the business was that we, you know, eliminated, you know, the three storage yards in Hong Kong and the three storage yards in Santos, Brazil, and maybe one storage yard and eliminated the three managers and made them one manager and eliminated the three computer training systems to make it one. So in the same manner, as opposed to expectation of cross-selling or things that hadn't actually happened. It was a very simple methodology uh, that, again, represented common sense. There's a lot of very valuable lessons to, to take from that. Thanks for that. So sticking to the, the topic of kind of identifying risk and looking at the markets today, inflation is one of the biggest macro risks that we're seeing and investors have to be very conscious of. So what is your opinion on the record levels of inflation we're seeing and what needs to be done to control these levels, do you think? Well, I mean, the answer is, uh, you know, inflation is nothing more complex than too much money chasing too few deals or too few opportunities. You know, over the last, particularly over the last uh, three or four years, we've flooded the world with way too much money and made the cost of that money, you know, uh, less than the inflation rate. So, you know, the true cost of capital was zero. That being followed up by a lot of inflation is hardly surprising. Clearly, we need to, you know, I mean, the Federal Reserve is buying $80 billion worth of debt a month. It should be selling $80 billion of debt a month and shrinking uh, you know, all of this empty money that's floating around. In the same manner, you know, zero interest rates uh, sound terrific, but zero interest rates create an environment uh, that's very prone to inflation. And ultimately, inflation is, uh, you know, is like leprosy. It's, it's an eroding process that, in effect, is very deleterious to true profitability. So I think we need to, you know, get back to uh, basics. We have to reduce the amount of money, you know, build America back programs like what the Biden administration tried to do uh, would have only added more fuel to the fire. Uh, the level of inflation, uh, I think, is actually understated. I think it's even higher than what we've seen, you know, what the numbers suggest today. Uh, and I think it's very dangerous. I mean, we live in a world of fiat currencies. Fiat currencies are currencies that are not backed by gold or, or, or other hard elements. And therefore, inflation can easily get out of control. I mean, you know, how many of us really, you know, have studied the Weimar Republic and what happened when, you know, all of a sudden uh, wheelbarrows full of money uh, we're needed to buy a loaf of bread. So I think inflation is something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, we need to uh, eliminate Federal Reserve people like Powell, uh, or eliminate the word transitory. I mean, I don't know where he came up with that concept, 
But you know, anybody who understands inflation couldn't possibly agree to that. He's since uh, changed his tune. But you know, the Fed, once again, as it's done numerous times in the past, has created way too much easy money that's really a problem going forward. So we need to toughen it up. I mean, hopefully we don't have to have a repeat of the Volcker uh, 21.5% you know, interest rates, but we certainly need to have higher interest rates and have equal importance is much less, quote unquote, money banging around and, and return the value of capital. If we look at the real estate and housing market today, given your vast experience and success in the space, what opportunities or risks do you see for the industry in the near future? Well, you know, you have to really make a distinction in between what I call the for sale market and the for rent market. You know, and what I would say is that real estate is a very large industry, but one with a lot of you know, different moving parts. I think in, in the rental side of the business, there's a real significant risk of political involvement. I mean, I like to refer to the you know, Arab Spring as uh, an event that dealt with the cost of bread. Well, maybe in 2022, uh, you replace the word bread with rent and the impact of hot rising rents having on the political system and right, you know, rent controls and things like that. Uh, I also think you're, you're seeing changes in the use of occupancy. You know, I mean, you know, the use of real estate. I mean, think about uh, the whole change in the office markets and, you know, and to what extent will uh, the classic office model be recreated going forward? In the same manner, you know, you got to look at the question of obsolescence. I mean, here in Chicago, we have a street called the South Street that used to be, you know, the business canyon of downtown Chicago. And now it's, you know, significantly empty. And it's made up of an old bunch of old buildings where the cost of renovation is prohibitive. So we're going to have to come up with some other unique solutions, just like, you know, uh, what happens to retail? You know, I like to tell people retail is a falling knife. Is it still falling? In retail, at least, prices have gone down. In office, prices haven't gone down, and yet the utility has gone down dramatically. So the whole real estate world is in a period of change and challenge, and the winners are going to be those people who are able to look at it and step back and not assess it based on the past, but focus on what the relevance is to the future. What advice would you give students today or your younger self if you could unwind the clock to the days when you were beginning your entrepreneurial journey? Well, I mean, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I'd start with uh, Abe Lincoln again and talk about common sense isn't so common. I talk about how important it is to uh, be an observer, to basically study what, what's going on. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an inveterate reader. I read five newspapers a day, uh, you know, three magazines a week, uh, various all kinds of reports. And I'm constantly, you know, adding information to, my, to the base of, of, of what I decide. I do a lot of public speaking and... Uh, Inevitably, at the end of almost every speech, uh, some young man or woman raises her hand, his or her hand and says, you know, when you were starting out, things were really easy. And there were all these opportunities that you had that, of course, we don't have today. Well, I think that that statement has probably been true since the beginning of time. And every generation thinks the last generation's opportunities we're much greater than what's available to them. I think the answer is that there's you know, unlimited opportunities that being curious, being focused, not only being able to recognize a problem, but recognize a solution is really what it's all about. Whether it be real estate or corporate, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, it's still the same premise of what's the problem, 
How has society dealt with it? And do you have a better solution? You have spoken in the past about the importance of critical thinking and how your experience in law school helped you develop this skill. So are there any books you could recommend to the listeners that helps foster critical thinking? Well, I, I guess I don't think about books in that way. I mean, uh, my comments in the past you know, were about law school. I mean, law school was truly one of the great bores of my lifetime. Uh, I can't tell you how terrible an experience it was. And yet, I would also tell you that, you know, when confronted uh, and asked for advice, you know, I'm, I'm most of the time would suggest people go to law school because we live in a legalistic society and, and, and law school trains you to think. And so although, as I said earlier, I graduated from law school and I didn't know anything, what I did know was how to think. And, uh, and that was really the great benefit of going to law school. What does success mean to you? And what is your biggest strength that has helped you be successful? I think, you know, that my success has been very much related to what I referenced to before, uh, which is the 11th commandment of thou shalt not take oneself seriously. What that means is that, yes, I have a, couldn't be what I am if you didn't have an ego, but having an ego and allowing that to cloud who you are and what you are and, and, uh, and, and not make you humble is a short-term solution to a much bigger problem. I think my success and, and my advice to other people is that, uh, that you understand that uh, all of us are vulnerable. All of us are subject to making mistakes, you know, and it's, it's a little bit like the definition of an entrepreneur uh, as it relates to the word failure. You know, an entrepreneur never fails. Maybe it doesn't work out, but he gets up and starts again. So, you know, I've had a, an extraordinary career, but I've also had some, you know, very abject failures. And uh, my ability to accept the failure accept the, the challenge, get up off the floor and go get it again uh, is what it's really all about. And not only go after it again, but go after it again with the benefits that came from the pain and suffering of the last adventure. Fantastic, Sam. We've come to the end of the podcast, but thank you very much for your time. And it's been a real privilege speaking with you today. My pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to me, Will O'Callaghan, on the Trinity SMF podcast. You can find more of this podcast on our website, www.trinitysmf.com. And follow us on social media to find out more about podcast releases, upcoming events, and much more.